HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today, well, guess what we're talking about? Yeah, it's water. Because <laughs> why? Because water is the staff of life, people, because water cannot be lived without. And because water, in a very rapid way, is starting to become a very major problem, um, not only because of climate disruption, but because of the way we treat our water sources. And today, to discuss that further with me is Chris Lavelle, who is a reporter for the New York Times, where he covers how climate change is affecting our daily lives and what steps governments, companies, and communities are taking to mitigate the negative impacts of our visible climate disruption. His work has won awards from the National Press Foundation and the Society of Environmental Journalists. He's been covering um, issues like this since about, I think I read, um, 2008. Is that right, Chris? Uh, 2016. 2016. About Sorry ago. about that. Okay. Um, and so, um, what drew me to you, and and I'm I, I must thank you very much for giving me your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, my show is only as good as my guests. <laughs> so so do a good job. All right. <laughs> Don't make me look bad. Okay. Uh, understood. So, <laughs> yes, you know your mission. So you and your colleague, who unfortunately could not join us today, Somini Sengupta wrote uh, an installment in the ongoing series, Uncharted Waters, uh, which has been um, appearing periodically in the New York Times for about the last eight months, I think. Um, is that about right? There's like six or eight articles at this point in the series. The first story in the series uh, published last August. Well, I have been following it with uh, great attention for the obvious reasons. Um, and the uh, subject that you and Somini um, tackled was how America's diet is feeding the groundwater crisis, which is a, an interesting way of looking at this. Um, I don't think people think that much about how their choice of foods 
actually has an impact on the future ability to drink clean water. So um, let's start by first giving a little bit of background on the piece and then tell us, maybe just give us the whole sort of thinking behind uncharted waters and then how you arrived at this particular topic and sort of all of that stuff. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Great. Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Uh, we started covering groundwater last year in part because um, at the start of last year, I was writing about the talks over the Colorado River uh, and states and federal officials were trying to decide how to deal with long-term declines in the amount of water in that river. Uh, and that those negotiations had me wondering, well, since there's been a multi-year drop in surface water in the West, what does that mean for groundwater? And, and I started thinking, well, well surely we must be able to find out whether or not there's more groundwater depletion going on as surface water becomes harder to get. And to my surprise, it was actually really hard to find out. There was no readily available data showing whether America had begun withdrawing more groundwater. No kidding. As surface water became harder to get. And so my colleagues and I spent time trying to think, well, what's the what's the best data we can get to answer that question? Because it seemed like a crucial question. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we got our hands on uh, monitoring well data. Uh, so the, both the federal government and the states uh, have a series of wells around the country uh, that serve as sort of a test to show what's happening with groundwater levels. They show the distance below the surface before you hit groundwater. And what we could determine once we got that data was how distance to water, which is a proxy for the health of the aquifer, has changed mm. over time. What we found was a significant share, more than half of monitoring wells around the country showed significant declines over the time period we looked at, which was since 1980. Uh, and so the first story in the series was looking at our findings and also talking about sort of at a high level why it's a problem if groundwater levels decline. It might seem obvious, but there's lots of reasons. Number one, you just have less groundwater. Mm -hmm. But number two, uh, you have subsidence, you have changes in the Earth's surface. Uh, number three, you have changes in the quality of the water. Often wells that are depleted will produce more arsenic and other contaminants uh, in the water you draw. But perhaps the most obvious problem, and the reason we really emphasized that first story was so much of this country's groundwater is used to irrigate agriculture in regions that don't get enough surface water. Uh, and so as groundwater declines, you get less opportunity to irrigate. And that's true also in places where there's still enough water to irrigate, but you can sort of get some idea what's going on by looking at the trends. Uh, and so we tried to say, okay, we've established the problem. Now let's Let's answer sort of what I think of as the core question journalism, which is why? Why is this happening? So we began a series of articles looking at different users of groundwater uh, to give readers some idea of who the actors were that were making this happen. Uh, and, and towards the end of the series, we realized you, you could really tell the story of groundwater depletion in a, in a complete and fair way without looking at food but not just food, specifically at feed crops, because so much of the water, the groundwater used in this country is used to irrigate not just crops for human consumption, 
with crops that are fed to animals that are then used for food. Right. Uh, and we picked two sort of uh, illustrative examples. Um, I looked at groundwater used to irrigate feed crops, mostly alfalfa, but not just alfalfa, in Idaho. Uh, and those feed crops are then used to feed dairy cattle. And my colleagues, Samini Sengupta, looked at Arkansas and groundwater used to irrigate soy, which is then largely used to feed chickens, mm -hmm. uh, a huge industry in Arkansas. And the goal was not to focus on two states per se, but more to help readers understand the system that has sprung up and why it is the incentives that caused these two states, which both have water challenges, to become real powerhouses in these respective industries. Uh, and, and I think we did uh, an okay job of just laying out the why behind groundwater consumption and hopefully helping American consumers understand the consequences of their choices. This was not a, a, a story designed to get people to stop eating meats or to stop eating animal products, rather to help understand what what happens as a result of those choices. Uh, one of the reasons we chose chicken and dairy, in particular cheese, was that the consumption per capita of those two products has, has roughly doubled in the time span we looked at, since 1980 or so. So Americans eat about twice as much cheese and twice as much chicken per capita as they did 40 some years ago. Uh, and that seemed like the right jumping off point to look at why this is happening and what it means for groundwater. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I mean, you know, cheese, and we don't think of cheese. Um, I mean, uh, having spent quite a bit of time in my life in Europe, I don't think of American cheese as quite the same thing. You know what I mean? So what we're talking about really is mozzarella, right? That's right. Yeah, we're not we're not talking about high-end cheese. It's, it's right. often cheese added to other products, pizza being the prime example. Yeah. Uh, and Americans, through those other products that contain cheese, eat way more of it than they used to. Yeah. And, you know, what, what kind of a cheese? Mozzarella, I don't even eat it when it's like, I mean, if it's like a buffalo mozzarella from, uh, from Italy, maybe. <laughs> to me, mozzarella is like the most boring cheese there is, besides maybe commercially produced brie. But anyway, but let's, let's, let's talk for a minute about um, Idaho, because that was the one that you really... Um, you really gave, uh, you, that was your section of the piece. And, um, and Idaho, um, to my surprise, uh, you state has become one of the top three dairy producers. So when we're talking about dairy production, we're not just talking about the feed crops that go into dairy production, but we're also talking about the animals themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what threw me was there, there's a story here, as is often the case. And the story one place to start that story is the early 90s when you had a, a huge dairy industry in California. And many of those dairy producers were in the southern part of the state, sort of at the outer reaches of the L.A. metropolitan hmm. area. Uh, and by the early Desert. 90s, <laughs> many of those producers were being squeezed out by a mix of regulations, taxes, suburban sprawl, dairy productions don't like having a lot of neighbors. And yeah, so right. over time, those producers began looking for somewhere else to set up shop. Uh, and many of them moved to Idaho 
because Idaho checked a lot of the most important boxes. Idaho had lots of land that wasn't that expensive. It right. had lower regulations. It had, and we'll come back to this, access to lots of water. But also, uh, it had great climate conditions for dairy. What I was told, I didn't know this, was that you can, you can set up a dairy operation, and many do, in a state like Vermont or Wisconsin or New York State. But because cows don't love extreme weather, you've got to house them. Whereas yeah. someone like Idaho, which doesn't have that extreme weather, you can house most of these animals outdoors, and the result is your costs are lower. So costs looked better in Idaho, along, along with other, other factors. So Idaho really took off, and the number of dairy productions and dairy cattle in Idaho just exploded starting in the early 90s. And what that meant was a big change in the crops that got grown in that state right. to feed those cows. So that would be a lot of planting of corn, soy, and alfalfa because they need that high protein. Indeed, um, yeah. So alfalfa is largely grown not just for cattle but for dairy cattle because of the right. extremely high protein content. And so a lot of farmers in Idaho began switching from crops that don't need as much water, uh, like potatoes. Yeah, I mean, um, I always or, think of Idaho as the potato capital of the world. Right. Is that no longer potato. the case? It, it still does produce something, but what really grabbed me about Idaho, and the reason I went to Idaho for the story, was two, two facts. Fact number one is Idaho is now the largest producer of alfalfa in the country. Fact number two is that Idaho also has seen the worst decrease in its groundwater levels of all the states. So we looked wow. at two metrics, um, share of wells that saw a decrease in groundwater levels over the last 40 years. Idaho topped that list. We also, huh. we also looked at share of monitoring wells that hit record low water levels in the past 10 years. Idaho also topped that list. No so on kidding. both metrics, Idaho was a place where something was going on. And so I spent some time there to understand what that meant, why it's happening, and how it interacted with this growth in the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary story. I mean, I would have thought, for example, that, say, Kansas would have seen the biggest groundwater depletion because they grow, you know, acres and acres of corn, um, soy, you know, other big row crops that are very water intensive and use a lot of inputs as well. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it's not, I don't want to present it. Idaho wasn't in a class by itself. The category right. of states that have seen significant depletion over the last 40 years was a big one. Kansas certainly in that group. Mm -hmm. But again, Idaho is special in part because it's, it's, it's basically desert, right? And right. the southern region, which is called the Magic Valley, uh, it receives about 10 inches of rainfall per year. And that's Which where all the of these dairy operations desert. are. Sorry, Chris. Right, me. right, right, yeah. right. So these dairy operations located in this valley that is effectively desert. And they did it because they have access to a huge amount of groundwater. The Snake River flows uh, through that part of the state before getting into Oregon. Uh, and so at the time when these dairy operations moved to Idaho in the 90s, it looked like this made a lot of sense. Now, the problem was since then, as I said, the depletion in groundwater has been really pronounced. In fact, Idaho is one of the only states I'm aware of uh, that has state officials openly warning farmers that pump groundwater that if they can't find a way to reduce their groundwater usage, they might get cut off. They might be forced 
to pump less. And the reason is that surface water users in Idaho are seeing their access to surface water decline as groundwater pumping has increased. And so the state uh, is actively involved and trying to find a way to get groundwater users to pump less to avoid depriving other water users of that water. So this is very much a live issue. I wouldn't want to give the impression that Idaho is not aware of this. Idaho officials are, are very much active on this, but they're struggling because like every state, the people who use groundwater in Idaho are using it for an economic purpose, right? And, sure. and the dairy industry and ag in general is enormous in Idaho. And so the counterpoint to all this, and, and we can talk about this as much as you want, but the counterpoint is, sure, in theory, you could preserve and protect groundwater by just uh, either shutting down or dramatically curtailing agriculture, but but then what, right? You These dairy operations need feed from somewhere. Uh, And so the thing that became apparent to me in reporting this story and the broader series is, you know, that there are real people involved here, right? Mm -hmm. These dairy operators uh, and these farmers who grow alfalfa, they are making decisions in response to economic incentives. They they are not seeking to destroy the aquifer. They're not sort of deliberately flouting, uh, you know, sustainable goals. They are responding to the market. But what really grabbed me with this series and with this story is that there aren't really market incentives pointing farmers or food producers towards more sustainable practices around water, right? There there are parts of the country where officials are trying to change the incentives. My colleague, Coral Davenport, wrote a great piece in this series looking at one county in California where they've essentially taxed groundwater mm-hmm. to reduce groundwater use. And that's yeah, that been, was very it seems quite successful. The result mm-hmm. is farmers have shifted the kinds of crops they grow towards crops that have higher value and they can produce uh, with less water. And the result is not the end of the egg industry in that county, but rather a much healthier egg industry. So there are options here for policymakers and farmers to look at. But for the moment in Idaho, they're still sort of thinking through what can they do? Because look, everybody everybody I talk to is on the same page here. They want to protect the groundwater. The question is, how do you do it? Yeah, that is the question. Because, I mean, you, once you build in that kind of infrastructure as well, you know, it's very difficult to wean away from it. I mean, we're talking millions and millions of dollars of investment um, to create these large dairy barns, uh, to, you know, have the types of, of machinery um, that is necessary to uh, grow and harvest those crops, the infrastructure needed for, for you know, for p- final processing and distribution. All of that stuff gets baked in, right? Mm. And then it's and really... It's, just, no, it's, it's, it's not just that. It's, of course, the cheese manufacturing facilities. Yeah, of course. Idaho now has, you know, some of the, the world's largest cheese manufacturers right. have set up so that's facilities a lot of jobs in Idaho right there. because it takes a massive quantity of milk. I think the rule of thumb is you need about 10 pounds of milk for every pound of cheese you That's produce. That's about right, yeah. So think of just just massive quantities of milk that has to move. And if it has to move over a longer distance, it becomes more expensive. So that I don't mean to jump ahead to the conclusion here, but one of the points that really grabbed me with this reporting was it's not as though we're looking at, you know, the cessation of cheese production in America. <laughs> Right. right. That's not really on the table. Right. I think the issue is 
Worst case scenario would be you move the dairy production and the alfalfa production that goes into it to states that aren't as water stretched. Um, and you could still produce probably a comparable amount of alfalfa in this country, but it would be marginally more expensive. Like one reason why alfalfa grows very well in the West, Idaho in particular, is because you don't want alfalfa being exposed to rain. If you've got uh. standing water on your alfalfa fields, farmers call it getting their toes wet, uh -huh. you have a real risk of losing that crop. So the right. best way to get a successful alfalfa crop is somewhere dry, e.g. somewhere it doesn't rain very much, e.g. somewhere you dry on groundwater. Wow, you can grow I had alfalfa no idea. In, right? Really yeah, like all these things have reasons. You could yeah. grow alfalfa in, in wetter states, but it wouldn't be as productive and you'd lose more of it. Well, but I wondered why they grew alfalfa in southwestern United States, and you've just answered that question. Right. It also responds well to sunshine. I mean, in Arizona, you can get massive amounts of alfalfa. You can grow it basically year-round, and it right. loves dry weather. So does it, do you have to grow alfalfa in the West? No, but it's cheaper. You get better margins. And the result is if you're someone buying cheese or whatever product in, in your grocery store, you're going to pay a little bit less. And so I think sure. the question that, that automatically arises from this story and this series is what, what do consumers want, right? Would consumers be willing to pay, I don't know what it is, 5% more, 10% more, maybe even 50% more? Would they pay more for their food, whether it's cheese or chicken or whatever, if that meant that the food product was coming in a more sustainable way that didn't have the same sort of consequences on groundwater? I, you know, we didn't do any... Uh, polling for this series. I don't. I couldn't ask that question. Um, but I, I, my guess, my strong guess is that most Americans don't realize that the reason they're able to get, again, take cheese for a low, low price, is that it's being produced uh, based on where is it most cost efficient, right. not based on where is the water input most sustainable. Right. Right. You know, Americans are not trained to think about that kind of stuff. Because and how would they know, right? No why would we? You know, that, you, there's no sort of mechanism when you're walking through the aisles in your grocery store. Mm -hmm. There's nothing on the packaging right. that would tell you this much water went into producing this package of cheese. Would people respond differently if they had their information? I don't know. But right now, it's not even clear how they would learn that in the first place. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you've taught me a few things I didn't know already in this course of this thing. We're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Chris Lavelle to talk more about how our diet is influencing our groundwater supplies. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese... The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. So, Chris, that, that's sort of like 
it, that is the crux of the question is how, as we were discussing in the first half, how do we make that trade between sustaining the economic viability of communities such as those that exist around the dairy industry in Idaho or the chicken industry in Arkansas, the other half of this article? Um, you know, how do we make that balance between sustaining our natural resources um, and sustaining our economic communities? And that uh, that really does seem to be sort of the crux of the whole conundrum of American style of agriculture. I mean, I'm not an expert on any other country, but I do see that they seem to be offering a somewhat better product um, at comparable prices and don't have a lot of the dietary issues that we do and don't seem to have quite as many of the issues facing us in terms of conserving our natural resources, primarily our water supplies. Um, so when it comes to writing a series like this, you know, what, where else are you guys going to go? Like how far is the Times thinking of taking this series um, in terms of providing really basic information about how our food system works and I mean, its the, impacts? The, the particular series, Uncharted Waters, that that's, I think that's probably concluded, but we will keep covering this. Mm -hmm. I think the, the reason groundwater was, was important is it's, literally invisible and you can't see it and so people don't think about it. Right. But aside from that, it's not that different from the broader challenge of climate change, which is it's one thing to know that there's a problem, that something is going in the wrong direction. And also to know how, you know, what steps would address it, but to not see those steps being taken. And so part of our job as journalists is to look at you know, again, the why. Why is it that America, whether it's American governments or consumers or companies or voters, don't seem to be responding to those signals? Uh, and, you know, with groundwater, I think the first the first challenge, as mentioned, is awareness. I, I doubt most Americans appreciate the sort of degree of stress facing America's groundwater resources. But also the solutions tend to be hard. Uh, and that, I think, dampens the enthusiasm. I, I, I want to really make clear that uh, state officials in the places we were, we wrote on and, and, and looked at, they're not blind to this. Um, in most of the states I looked at, there are state officials trying to address it. In Idaho, for example, state officials are trying to address groundwater depletion by engaging in, in what's known as uh, managed recharge, uh, sort of building infrastructure that will increase the amount of surface water and rainwater in particular that will get into these aquifers. Uh, and the hope is that when you have big storms or wet years, more of that water can be directed into the aquifer to recharge that aquifer. Uh, as I mentioned, the state is also trying to push groundwater users to cut back on their usage. Uh, and other states we talked to, similar cases where officials are looking for ways to address these problems, but the big, the big caveat to all that is, in really every case I can think of, the goal is to find ways to address this problem without really asking farmers or consumers to sacrifice. And that's sort of the first line of adaptation. Adaptation is sort of my, my main focus area on the climate team. Mm. And you look at, in general, how Americans try to adapt to climate change Generally, the first response is, what can we do to maintain our sort of current practices, current behaviors, current lifestyles, uh, and just reduce our impact on 
the climate. And sometimes there's a lot you can do. Often, and this is sort of the nub of climate adaptation, why it's so interesting and so challenging, often you can't get far enough just through uh, policy changes that don't really require any sacrifice. Like it's it, the obvious maxim, if it were easy, we would have fixed this. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, think with groundwater, the question is, yes, states will continue trying to find solutions that don't impose any meaningful sacrifice on farmers or food producers or customers or, or home builders or anybody else. But it sure looks like those types of interventions are not likely to have the kind of benefit you need fast enough. I should note, though, the federal government, the Biden administration, they're throwing money at these sorts of interventions uh, where you can increase recharge or increase efficiency or otherwise try to address groundwater depletion in ways that don't really require any meaningful behavioral changes or any sacrifices. But again, I spent most of last year on this stuff. It does not look like those kinds of interventions, which don't really upset anybody because it just involves spending money, it doesn't look like they're going to solve the problem. Uh, and so the, the next question, which my team will cover, and I, I imagine other journalists will cover as well, is as this problem gets worse, and as it becomes clearer that just spending more money to try to increase groundwater resilience, that that won't probably do it. What next? Right. And so I think the, the next question is who is going to be forced to make those sacrifices? In Idaho, you could imagine that farmers are uh, compelled because they can't use as much groundwater. They're compelled maybe to invest more, spend more money on water efficient uh, irrigation techniques or mm-hmm. other techniques that'll cost them, that'll cut their margins, which are already thin. You could imagine. Um, Eventually, consumers being told, you've got to pay more for this brick of cheese, right? Or this bucket of chicken wings, because the current focus on growing this stuff where it's cheapest is ignoring the problem of groundwater. And, and you know, what does that look like? Who does that burden fall on? I spoke with dairy producers in Idaho who made what I thought was an important argument, which is, okay, you can imagine a world where we change sort of the way we produce proteins so that your protein mix has a lower water footprint, but that also might mean your protein mix is more expensive. And what do you do for people on the lower end of the income ladder who now have to pay more for protein for their kids, right? Is that, does that meet the goals that we care about? And that, I think, is a very legitimate question, right? So groundwater... You can't look at this in a vacuum. The question is, how do you, or the question for policymakers is, how do you make this stuff more sustainable without imposing perhaps surprising consequences on different segments of the population uh, that that we might we might not want? Uh, so I, you know, I hope people will read this series and take away from it the idea that not only is this a real problem, there aren't easy solutions, um, but I think the current approach of just sort of ignoring it doesn't seem like it's going so well. Well, it's, I mean, to me, it was actually more than ignoring it. I mean, I understand that, you know, farmers are certainly anxiously looking after their property and doing their best uh, to produce as much as they can with as little, using as little resources as is feasible. 
But I was also struck by, in both sections of the article, um, by some of the local state uh, agricultural entities. For example, um, uh, uh, the guy, the spokesman for the Idaho Farm Bureau Federation said that, quote, using our natural resources, including water, to produce an abundance of crops makes a lot of sense. And then another guy from Arkansas said, we're proud of our state's livestock and poultry industry. In other words, they are kind of in those. And then also there were other, like the Idaho Farm uh, Bureau did not refuse to comment on this article. So there are actually entities in these states and in, indeed in all of the Farm Belt states where you know concerns over things like groundwater use are not actually being factored in. What is being factored in is the profit margin, whether or not they are going to deliver to their shareholders. These are large, I mean, you know, I think we, we often make the mistake of saying, oh, these poor little solitary farmers. A lot of these guys are making a lot of money, especially the ones who are heading up really big uh, corn, soy, alfalfa, you know, those kinds of uh, row crops. Um, they are, they're not struggling. They're corporate, they're often corporate owned. Um, they have uh, lots of resources. And they are merely interested in extracting as much uh, as they possibly can from the land and moving on to another place when that land no longer becomes uh, profitable or hospitable to them. So I think, I think it's, you know, uh, yes, there is an onus on consumers to address this, to become knowledgeable about these problems and to address these problems in their own, uh, you know, voting with their fork or whatever. Um, but I, I think the pressure has to be also on legislation uh, to provide regulations. I mean, water regulations in this country or water rights, like in the West, and I know the Times covered this too um, in their thing. I mean, but the, the, the tangle of water rights and who gets what water, say in the Colorado River watershed, is, dates back to the 1860s. I mean, these are not, you know what I mean? And there's no incentive um, necessarily uh, to change those practices until, you know, counties and towns run out of water as they are in Texas, for example, and as they will uh, soon be doing in Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, et cetera. So I, I, I feel like there's got to be more of a legislative, you know, fix to this than just relying on companies to do the right thing or farmers to do the right thing. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I, I do. And, and from my reporting, from talking to people who are working on this area. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's certainly the sense I got from them as well, that to the degree that policies are going to change, those policy changes will come from lawmakers, mostly state lawmakers. This yeah. is very much a state issue. Yeah, yeah, it's, sure. I think you know, it's a difficult question to talk about sort of what, what is the obligation of of the farming industry, uh, you know, you're presenting it a bit as like, you know, sort of large corporations. Uh, I also met a lot of family farmers while I was reporting the story. There's a, sure. certainly a mix of both. Um, I, I, it's, it's unclear to me from reporting this to what degree it makes sense sort of um, identify farmers as as the actors that one would expect to change here i mean there's a sort of a separate sort of moral normative argument and ethics that's just like totally divorced from what i'm looking at uh but i guess from sitting down with a lot of these farmers often in their homes 
and talking to them mm-hmm. and talking about how they've run their farms and how their fathers or mothers run ran their farms and how you know their the the life they've built. I was certainly struck by the sense of these people are trying to do what they can based on the information and the incentives that they have right. and the tools they have. Uh, and if, if people who are worried about groundwater, uh, you know, are watching farmers to change, uh, it's not obvious that that's how the system is built. It seems like, again, you said this, I think state policymakers, their job is to take the longer view. And again, in many of the states I went to, I met with state lawmakers or state officials mm-hmm. who were grappling very actively with these things. Um, but, it, you know, the question, I think, is how do you apportion the pain right. of cutting back on water use, right? And I talked to yeah. somebody in Nevada for this series who made the point that, you know, democracies in general and state leadership in particular, they're really not built to apportion sacrifice. They're built to apportion uh, uh, gains and growth right, and prosperity. wins. And so these, you know, these states are struggling to to deal with a situation where groundwater is a, a problem and they've got to cut back because they're not they're not designed to upset people, right? So this mm-hmm. you've got you've got in whole parts of the American West economies that are sort of built on groundwater depletion. Uh, and that made sense until it didn't. And so I think one of the interesting things to watch for me as a journalist and just for Americans is as the realization sinks in that the way these things have happened so far isn't sustainable, what do they do? In particular, do you wait for a crisis <laughs> right. or do you or do you get ahead of it and try to cut water use to avoid hitting a crisis? And yeah. that, I think, is a, a live question in all of these state houses, uh, and it's certainly one that that I plan to keep on covering. Well, that's uh, fantastic. I mean, it was a really interesting article. The whole series, I can't recommend it enough uh, to all of the listeners here. Um, it's called Uncharted Waters. Chris and Samini's article is just one of six or seven excellent, well-researched pieces about what is happening to the water supplies of the United States and what are we doing to protect them for the future. And, you know, it's, as you said, it's it's a very difficult balancing act between maintaining the economic viability of a community and maintaining its literal existential existence, right? <laughs> because if it ain't no water, it ain't no nothing. So yeah. very interesting discussion, Chris. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, we will uh, be in touch again soon. I'm sure I'll keep an eye out for your byline. I hope you'll come back to the show. Appreciate it. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.